Okay, everyone, welcome to DefiYield.app, our first interview with Mark and with Nate. They are the head of research and growth, respectively, at Bancor. And so thanks for being with us, guys. We are super excited to have you with us today. Likewise. Thanks for having right, us. Suck to be here, Michael. Thank you so much. Awesome. So for those who don't know, uh, Bancor is like the total pioneer in the space of yield farming and liquidity pools. Their protocol was invented in Israel in 2017. Uh, but I wonder if you guys could give us a little bit of a background for people who aren't familiar with Bancor. Probably most of our audience is, but that being said, just a quick little introduction to who you guys are, uh, where you came from, and uh, we'll dive in. Yeah, sure. Uh, I can kick that off. Uh, I've been with Bancor since uh, late 2017, early 2018. Uh, was in mobile technology and startups for quite a while uh, before that, um, and then actually started my career in financial journalism. So was covering um, Wall Street and um, the stock exchange for a while. Uh, and Bancor, yeah, Bancor has been around for quite a ways. We came up with the first uh, automated market maker on the blockchain. Um, deployed it on Ethereum in late 2017. And since then, I've seen an explosion in automated liquidity. Uh, in particular, in the past year, Bancor uh, really came back onto the scene in a, in a very strong way. We came out with our V2.1 protocol version, which really offers the simplest staking experience inside an AMM liquidity pool, uh, no impermanent loss, single-sided exposure, um, and we've seen a lot of demand for it since then. Uh, the protocol is doing quite well. We're, uh, you know, over, we've reached over 2 billion in TBL, uh, one of the, I'd say, top five uh, Ethereum DeFi apps in terms of uh, protocol fees. So it's been, a, it's been a very exciting ride. And then we have our uh, V3 coming up uh, quite soon and excited to, to dig in, in there uh, a little bit more. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Mark. <laughs> yeah, and so um, unlike Nate, I don't, uh, I didn't come from a um, a strong financial background. Um, so I, I was a research scientist for 14 years. Um, I was a, uh, a lecturer for the Department of Chemistry at UCI for two years. I worked at the CSIRO in Australia. Um, my fields were sort of the interface between. Uh, small molecules and molecular biology, chemical biology, and uh, nanotechnology. Um, and during the, the pandemic, uh, I had a lot of time on my hands while uh, Melbourne was in a, a nine-month shutdown. I kind of used that time to familiarize myself with the DeFi space, um, and in particular, the, um, the protocols and communities that I thought would had the strongest value propositions. Um, and so after floating around for, for a little while in, in different DAOs, I became heavily aligned with uh, Bancor version 2 and then um, sort of positioned myself as a, um, you know, one of the, the more committed community members during the launch of version 2.1 when that, the DAO went, first went live. Um, I started collaborating with the, um, some of the founding uh, Bancor members with regards to a flexible credit system that we now call the Bancor Vortex. And I, I started uh, a full-time uh, research position with Bancor um, in January of this year. Awesome. It's super cool how 
DeFi and crypto attracts all these really smart people from all kinds of different fields that you would never traditionally associate with coming over there. Just out of curiosity, what was the thing that made Bancor in particular stand out to you when you were looking at different projects? Yeah, um, so I, I, I will refrain from uh, speaking about other projects specifically, um, but basically there is this common model where there's kind of this parasitism between uh, the token holders of a, a certain project and mm -hmm. the, the liquidity providers and other participants in that ecosystem. Um, so, you know, there's a, this kind of ethos that we create the protocol and then we've got a, a token with it because every project has a token. And then yep. they kind of sh shoehorn utility into the token, right? Like, you know, it, for a lot of these projects, if you actually just ripped the token out, um, for the people that actually use the system, it would look more or less the same, which begs the question, what's the purpose of that token? With Bancor, that's absolutely not true. Um, it's kind of simultaneously an underwriting token and a liquidity token. Um, and so in terms of its actual demonstrable utility, uh, I mm -hmm. think it's on, it's unparalleled. And so, yeah, after uh, exploring sort of the tokenomics of a lot of these different projects, um, I really came to the the conclusion that BNT has the, the strongest fundamental value um, and that and the, the, the collaborative nature of the token holders with the liquidity providers and traders on the platform um, is much healthier than sort of just imposing a, an unnecessary tax on its users. Um, and so that's, that's really, um, I think if I had to, you know, compact it down as, as uh, concisely as I can. Um, I think that that kind of sums up my, my general attitude. Yeah, Mark is like the Cinderella story of DeFi. He just started showing up on our community calls and writing <laughs> DAO proposals. And we're like, who is this guy? And, and next thing we know, he's our, he's our head of research and he's leading our, uh, some of our, our bigger research initiatives. So, um, it's really, it really shows anyone who's listening now who wants to get involved in DeFi, just pop up in, in DAOs, start proposing stuff, have smart ideas, and you, know, you can kind of you know, wield a lot of influence on the direction of, of your or protocols you believe in. Yeah, I love that about DeFi, that's great. So maybe that, that's a great intro to uh, tell us a little bit about the protocol. You guys have two tokens, YBNT and ETHBNT. What, what is, how does it work? What's the structure? What's the reasoning behind it? Yeah, sure. So, so there's one uh, token that uh, is at the center of our universe and that's, that's BNT. Yep. So um, if folks are familiar with liquidity pools and some liquidity protocols, uh, most protocols use ETH as the paired asset, as the sort of connecting asset in, in their pools or really any any token can be used, uh, you know, in, in a in a standard 50-50 pool. Yeah. Uh, Bancor, since its design, has been very intentional about having BNT as the connecting asset. So mm -hmm. uh, every trade goes through BNT, and BNT holders collect 50% of fees that are generated on the network. You think mm -hmm. of the other AMM protocols. Um, you know, uni, for example, uni holders don't collect any fees, 0% uh, from, from trades that occur. Sushi is around 16%. And then, like I said, Bancor is uh, 50%. 
Now, in most uh, AMM liquidity pools, when you want to add liquidity to a pool, you have to do one of two things. You have to add 50-50 or whatever the ratios are in, yep. in tokens. So say I'm a link holder and I want to provide link liquidity to a pool, then uh, if the pool has ETH as the paired asset, or let's say that's the case on Uniswap and SushiSwap, I'll have to provide half in ETH and half in link, right? Yep. And yep. Uh, another method is I could provide just link, but then that would split my link exposure into ETH. So it would be, you know, putting half on the link side and half on the ETH side. Now, yep. Bancor's really innovative model is single-sided liquidity pools. So you can provide yep. liquidity to a Bancor pool without any exposure to BNT. You can do it just 100%, provide 100% in link, and then your holdings are tracking the price of link. And this is really important because we get to something called impermanent loss. And impermanent yes. loss, which we can delve into, is effectively when you're providing liquidity to AMM pools, as the assets are diverging in price, let's say link goes up a lot and ETH stays the same, then the pool will actually sell off that link as the price is rising. So as a liquidity provider, you're not really fully exposed to the upside, which is most, most token holders, we hold our tokens because we're think, we think they're gonna moon. And yeah. the tough part about AMMs until Bank, Bancor V2.1 came along is you had to make a decision of do I want to provide liquidity or do I want to be fully long on the token? And now yeah. Bancor has said, you can do both in our pools. Yeah. You can maintain this full upside exposure. If it, whatever link you provide, let's say you provide a hundred link, you'll always get a hundred link back as long as you're in the pool for a certain amount of time. Even mm -hmm. if it doubles in price, triples in price goes five X, you'll still get that a hundred link back. You don't yeah. need to expose to the other side of the pool. And so yeah. it's really the feeling is similar to just holding the tokens kind of in your wallet, except you're in a liquidity pool and you're generating both trading fees from trades that are processed by the pool. So any link yep. trades, I get a piece of that paid in link, the token yep. that I make. Um, and also liquidity mining rewards. So nice. our protocol um, provides mining rewards to strategic pools. And you can see if you go to bancor.network, you can see what your APY is from rewards and also from fees. And yep. some of the best rates that you'll see uh, in DeFi on you know a number of tokens link wbtc eth um, and then also if you hold bnt and want to provide bnt to a liquidity pool the rates uh they're quite high too and again your uh single side exposure to bnt so only exposed to bnt in that case you're also protected from impermanent loss and you're getting the trading fees and liquidity mining rewards too so we really think we've designed the simplest uh, best experienced in DeFi for liquidity providers. Uh, no IL, you don't have to worry about impermanent loss. You don't have to be constantly checking your stake and managing it. You don't have to be exposed to other tokens. Just stay long and, and collect fees. Set and forget. Yeah, that's, that's wanna, amazing. Go, go I, ahead, I just want to quickly address, sir. I think when you started your question, it was that we have two tokens. One is ETH BNT and the other one is YBNT. Uh, it's a bit misnomeric. So the um, ETH BNT, uh, this is the original 
pool token, right? This was um, back when uh, Bancor first launched. I think they were called smart tokens and then they were called relay tokens. And um, the, the industry has kind of settled on pool token as being, you know, the description for a, an ERC-20 contract that basically awards the value of a particular liquidity pool to the token holders pro rata. Um, and so ETHBNT was just the pool token associated with the BNT Ethereum pool. So it's not necessarily, uh, you know, a, a token that is, um, you know, um, integral to, to the system. It's not something that, you know, is um, is anything except, you know, representing a, a share in that particular liquidity pool. In version 2.1, the role of pool tokens is slightly obscured, but they are still there. But we do actually have two tokens, right? So BNT is one of them, which is the, the base asset for all pools. And then the other one is VBNT. And VBNT is the governance token for our DAO. Um, and unlike, unlike other governance tokens in the ecosystem, um, our governance token is created and destroyed um, as needed. So basically when someone uh, contributes BNT to the uh, liquidity of the system, um, the protocol issues them VBNT and they can use that through an opt-in mechanism to participate in DAO decisions. But when they want to leave the ecosystem, they have to concede that VBNT back to the protocol in order to unlock their BNT. So essentially all VBNT in existence uh, represents staked BNT. Um, uh -huh. And that's, that's kind of your, uh, your voice in, in government. Um, but when you want to leave, um, those governance tokens disappear. Um, so it's slightly different um, in terms of the governance economics model um, compared to other protocols. Yeah, that's super interesting. What was the reason for making those decisions? Yeah, so I, I, I can take that. So in a lot of protocols, we, we saw that um, there was a governance token that uh, someone could, you know, buy the governance token and then influence uh, governance, vote, vote on what proposals and the direction uh, of the protocol. Yeah. We have a pretty strong view that the um, people who are contributing resources, the, the most to the protocol, the really, the, the workers, let's say, should have the strong, the, the most influence on the protocol. So BNT, mm -hmm. actually the only way you get it is if you provide BNT liquidity to a pool and that generates yep. BNT. And what this ensures is that there's a hundred percent overlap between governance participants and liquidity providers on the network. If you want to influence <clears throat> our governance, you need to be providing your resources, your BNT to the protocol. And this is opposed to other protocols where, um, you know, there are people voting and then there are liquidity providers and they're really two separate groups and they're often at odds with each other uh, yeah. about a lot of, um, you know, things that come up in the protocol. And we feel if we have this 100% overlap, and then, then it'll, you know, improve the DAO dynamics. And, and we've really seen that. Our DAO is the most, uh, one of the most, if not the most active uh, on Snapshot, um, you know, tons of people voting, uh, tons of people commenting, uh, and, it, and it's growing a lot. And, um, you know, we're really excited to see that. We think this DAO design has been particularly effective in, in driving that engagement. Yeah, I think on, on a decisions per day, measure um i think we're second only to make a DAO at the moment nice nice that's a great great metric how does it work so could somebody deposit bnt into a liquidity pool 
therefore get BBNT and then turn around and sell the BBNT. So then, right. And so, so yeah. Um, so when they said there's a hundred percent overlap, that's not entirely true. It's a bit of an approximation. Um, we do have a, a BNT BBNT liquidity pool. Um, okay. But the the size of that pool is strictly limited by the DAO, um, and this is part of our um, part of the flexible credit system um, that I'm sure that we may talk about soon. Um, but basically, we we make sure that the amount of VBNT available for direct purchase is very low compared to the amount of VBNT that the that other DAO participants already have. So if you want to purchase VBNT um, for, um, you know, to, to basically be the counterparty on this, on this credit system, that's fine. And you can, you can make money doing that. Um, but if your goal is to buy VBNT in order to influence governance, uh, it's, it's very difficult, right? The, the uh, amount of VBNT available for sale is so small compared to the amount of VBNT in the governance contracts that it's yep. um, buying it for governance purposes alone or to, you know, um, to uh, deliberately, you know, push through uh, counterproductive or nefarious policy um, is a, a losing battle. You, you basically can't do it. Cool. And, cool. But Michael, you, you bring up a really interesting use case and it's a huge part of our product now. If you stake BNT and get VBNT, and then you swap your, you can swap your VBNT for any token uh, on the network. What you're uh -huh. effectively doing is you're borrowing against your staked uh, BNT. So you uh -huh. can swap your VBNT, say, into ETH and do whatever yeah. you want with that ETH. You can provide it again to the ETH pool on Bancor and make even more money. You can take the ETH and take it to Maker or any other DeFi protocol. But we felt that when a user comes and stakes their BNT that, uh, you know, say a cool DeFi farming opportunity comes up or they want to provide more liquidity, they should be able to get leverage on that staked um, BNT. And that's really what uh, is behind this concept of the Bancor Vortex. And it's something that we're leaning into even more, the ability to get leverage uh, and use your staked liquidity because it's effectively tokenized liquidity. Use yep. that for other for other purposes and to do something called leveraged yield farming, which we think is uh, is is very powerful. And we've seen a lot a lot of users uh, swap their VBNT. Um, now the bet you're making there is risk involved, and you should be you should know about the risk. And and Mark can can dig into that even more. But the bet you're making is that because the VBNT price changes, it's not always one one to one for yep. uh, BNT, and effectively it's changing and reflecting the amount of lending capacity that the protocol has. As more and more people take out leverage, yep. the price of VBNT will drop, and have, mm -hmm. as people uh, pay back their debts and unwind and 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 sell back their VBNT in order uh -huh. to block their BNT. The price uh -huh. of BNT relative to BNT will rise, and if the price of BBNT is rising, you'll you'll have to buy back your VBNT in order to unlock your BNT at a higher price. Now the value yeah. is that whatever you're doing with the tokens that you've swapped into, let's say that's ETH, and you're farming with whatever on Bancor or elsewhere, 
that you've made more money doing that than it would cost to buy back the BBNT if, if the price rises when you're leveraged. So sure. I know that might've been a lot. Does that- No, no, it makes perfect sense. No, it's really, it's interesting. I mean, basically you're going short BBNT. Um, and so, cause it could go both ways, right? It's possible that, you know, more people are taking loans out, which is causing the price of BBNT to go down. And let's say you right. went into Link and Link's going up. Well, then, you know, you can come back and you can buy your BBNT back at a lower price. And then you can use that to unlock your BNT. And, you know, so there's some, it could go the other way as well, but it's, uh, yeah. yeah, that's basically your directional bet. And what's really cool Correct. is you can't be liquidated. The only person who can unlock that BNT from the pool is the person um, with, with, it is that, is that wallet. So no one okay. else. No one yeah, else. So it's not like by somebody getting your BBNT, they can't then go unlock your liquidity. It's only you, exactly. you can unlock it, but you need this. That's super cool. That's a very, very interesting uh, system. Yeah. So, so what we've managed to do is basically come back to like to like the two hundred year old fundamentals of what interest rates were actually meant to achieve. Right. A high interest rate just means that you want to, you know, you want to put sort of a a cap or a trailing cap on the amount of debt that the ecosystem is, is um, accumulating. And so what's interesting is that we're used to bonding curves as being sort of, um, you know, being used exclusively for trading, but they're actually really, really good at um, controlling debt limits as well, um, because the amount of debt is fixed by whatever the reserve is on the other side, right? You can never actually extract all of the tokens from one side of a pool. So when the protocol put in a certain amount of BNT when that pool was, um, when that pool was started, we're saying that this is a maximum leverage possible for any liquidity provider. And as people take these loans, um, the exchange efficiency of that VBNT goes down and therefore the risk of taking the loan goes up. So instead of interest rate, um, you know, causing people to become liquidated or you know, causing people to have to pay more money on the way back, instead, we just let them take less and less from the pool each time. And so it's actually working extremely well. I think it's it's going to be quite um, quite sustainable long term. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So just for people who maybe aren't familiar, uh, because uh, bonding curves are not not necessarily known by everyone, could you just give a quick explanation for how bonding curves work? Because basically, what you've got here is like you have AMM, which is like sometimes, of course, tokens have just that's the way they've been released. It's just on the bonding curve, right? Uh, I think BitCloud was kind of a famous one that did that in the right. last while. Um, and so here you've got this hybrid model, which is, is super fascinating. So yeah, maybe just explain quickly to people what a bonding curve is and how it works. Yeah. And, uh, sure. So the, there, are, it used to be a much simpler story. Um, I think that for the purpose of the, ex the explanation, we'll go with the first bonding curve that Bancor introduced back in 2017. Be aware that there are modifications on this, the most notable being, uh, the one that curve introduced, um, but basically uh, a bonding curve is just a, a function that tells you how many tokens should be in the pool at any one time. And so the, the one that Bancor is using is the constant product model with 50-50 weights. Balancer has uh, a system and so did we, um, where you can adjust these weights. But essentially um, the function is really simple. It's A times B equals K, where K should be an unchanging number. And A and B are the numbers of the tokens on either side of the pool. So for example, on Bancor, if you've got a, um, let's say a, a BNT USDC pool, let's pretend that Bancor is a dollar. 
um, you might have 100 BNTs on one side and 100 USDC on the other side. Now, when someone wants to buy BNT from that pool, they have to put USDC into the pool. And so what we do is we look at, okay, when there's 100 on each side, that means that K is 10,000, right? 100 times 100 is 10,000. Yeah. And, so and so however much USDC is coming into the pool and however much BNT is leaving the pool, you have to make sure that the state of the pool at the end, that those two reserves multiplied by each other is still equal to 10,000. And this um, is interesting because it means that the thing that you're selling, its price is always going down. And the thing that you're buying is its price is going up just by the act of you performing that trade. And so yeah. it, you can think of it as being the, the simplest you know, embodiment of um, something like supply and demand, you know, um, behavior, right? The thing that yeah. people don't want, the thing that they're selling is going to go down. And the thing that people want, the thing that's in demand, the thing that you're buying is coming up in price. Um, and, you know, I, I need to break out a spreadsheet and start doing some algebra with you in order to get into more details than that. But that's basically the, the, the shorthand version. Yeah. So just one of the kind of concepts that's a little bit different between say a bonding curve and a normal market is a normal market, you know, the price could get bid up. There's not a fixed ratio, uh, whereas right. in a bonding curve it's determined algorithmically. So as there's more buying, it goes according to a predictable model, which is determined and set, uh, as opposed to, I can't just come in and bid way, way higher for something and cause it. Yeah, to exactly. And that's, I think that's, you know, part of the, the value of AMS is that, um, everyone agrees on what the outcome should be. One of the problems with um, you know, centralized order book models is that it's really in the hands of the, the market makers there to sort of price the assets that are being bought and sold correctly. And you know, it, it's a, a, a fairly common and easy to perform white collar crime um, to, to mess with those metrics, right? Um, so collusion between market makers um, and between governments and market makers has, has been a longstanding and well-documented problem. And AMMs kind of abstract that away because the only thing that controls the price is this algorithm and no one can influence it through any means other than buying and selling the thing. So it's a, a much more equalizing um, system, I think, in, in that respect. Yeah. yeah comes, that's, that's comes back to this kind of comes back to this trustless, you know, narrative in, in cryptocurrency. I think that's why it's so yeah. appealing to so many people. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. Just a quick question before I, I'll move on to kind of some of the other technology. But uh, when you guys design your governance token, do you do actually on-chain governance or do you some of the, do the snapshot? And then if you do the snapshot, uh, well, maybe just let's start with that question. Do you do on-chain governance or is it taken by an external snapshot? We, we used to. Um, in fact, the, I think the, the, the foundation um, insisted on doing um, uh, that the DAO should be, be on chain because we don't want anything to sort of be in the hands of a centralized entity. Um, yeah. But the, the DAO quickly decided that um, moving from a, a decentralized technology to a decentralized decision making system is much better. The problem that we had with on chain governance was that. Uh, voting when the you know the gas price is at 200 gway um, means that you know users are paying sort of like between 50 and 60 dollars every time that there's a decision um, and you know at the rate that we're going through proposals now that would be like 120 dollars a day um, for every down number so that that was just unsustainable it meant that people with the largest um, with the largest amount of capital were the only ones that could afford to be participating and so what you yeah. traded, in sort of that decentralized security 
um, was the security risk of the DAO becoming influenced entirely by high net worth individuals. Um, and so, yeah, the DAO um, put forth a proposal to move all decision-making to snapshot, but we have a, a slightly different way of doing it. So snapshot is defined as being a, um, a delegate of the on-chain voting system. So in a sense, if um, you can think of it kind of like how, um, like the Australian prime minister, for example, is actually just a representative of, of the queen's authority. Um, and at any time, if you know, the Australian parliament becomes corrupted, um, the governor general can sack the, the parliament and then rebuild um, the government in, you know, according to, um, you know, the ruling authority. And so Ethereum for our DAO is still the ruling authority. Any proposal um, that goes onto the Ethereum blockchain can override or, you know, um, rescind the authority of, of Snapshot. So basically, as long as Snapshot remains functional, then we are yeah. happy to sort of keep it as a representative of, of, um, of the, the DAO structure. But if at any time it becomes compromised, um, a, a second proposal or another decision can be made on Ethereum that would allow Snapshot to essentially be deposed and mm -hmm. um, move governance back. So we've got this really excellent sort of um, backstop um, that if uh, a centralized system like Snapshot ever did become corrupted um that we can easily fall back onto the safety of ethereum and that's not going to be a problem for us i think we're by the way we're the only DAO on snapshot to have that structure built into it i'm not sure what it would mean for um for some of these other um governance systems that if snapshot was compromised like would that would the attacker then control their DAO? i'm actually not sure but for Bancor, it's it's clear that they wouldn't cool cool that's uh that's really interesting i appreciate you sharing that um, just talking about gas fees, cause that's obviously been a big, uh, a big conversation. Uh, are there any plans that Vancor has to do things to mitigate gas fees? Obviously there's, you know, side chains and layer twos and all this sort of thing that's, uh, coming up. Yeah. So a, a huge part of our focus for V3 is on, um, getting the, the contracts to be a lot simpler. And that's going to translate to reduce gas costs for users, both for traders and for liquidity providers. Um, but I'll, I'll let Nate take it from, from there, I think, um, with regards to the other plans. <clears throat> well, um, that was a key point that on Ethereum L1, the, the contracts will be simplified and it will reduce gas significantly. Um, we are also going to build Bancor uh, on, on an L2 or sidechain. Um, yes. We're focused... Uh, very much on nailing the core functionality of mm -hmm. AMF technology. Yeah. In Bancor V3, we're introducing something that we've never seen tried or, or done on uh, AMMs before. Uh, we think it's uh, sort of a real step function improvement in the core uh, AMM design um, mm -hmm. that will allow for um, a higher capital efficiency, um, which will improve uh, LP returns uh, mm -hmm. and which will also improve uh, volume uh, on the network and, and, and make it uh, a very interesting place for, for traders to, to focus their trading on Bancor. So we're very focused on getting this um, innovation or series of innovations included in V3 
uh, built into the protocol on Ethereum L1 and then rapidly deploying it on an L2 uh, and or sidechain or other chain. Um, the benefits that we've seen and the traction that we've seen uh, or started to see on L2s is undeniable. The capacity improvements of um, an L2 chain is undeniable. So there's no question we need to be there and we will be there. The matter, uh, it's, it's just a matter of timing. Now, once we can ship our V3, it will be rapidly deployed on, on L2. And a big part of our V3 is, is simplifying the contracts and allowing us to move to other chains faster. Um, and, so, and so that's really where things stand for us in terms of uh, multi-chain L2 and, and also gas costs. Really interesting. Do you have any thoughts on maybe what L2 you would do or that's too early to say? I don't think it's too early to say that we're paying very close attention to Polygon. Um, yeah. I think that of um, I think that it's unlikely that um, the the spike in uh, Polygon's activity is uh, likely to diminish significantly. I I, I do think that um, you know the, the Matic team is is really great. That the, the solution that they've um, come up with is is clearly um, garnering the sort of traction that we wanted to see in a layer two solution before committing to it. Um, and so I, you know, I, I think that of all of the layer twos right now, Polygon is obviously the most attractive. Um, but you know, we, you shouldn't take that to mean that we're exclusively interested in Polygon, um, or that you know, we're, um, that it's a definitive decision yet. But I think that you know, if if you wanted to to make a guess, um, you know, Bancor has clearly stated that we're paying attention to. Um, to user demographics and basically letting them decide where Bancor gets deployed, and uh -huh. Polygon is, is you just can't ignore the, um, the, the the momentum that it's garnered for itself. And so I think that it would be pretty safe to assume that Bancor will be at least on Polygon, um, but that you know we're still paying attention to Optimism and Arbitrum and, and other chains as well. Cool, cool, sounds great. Awesome. Well, maybe you could dive into a little bit telling uh, kind of the evolution from V1 to V2 to V2.1 and uh, explain kind of what has changed there and why you made those changes, et cetera. Sure. So I can take the V1 to V2 and then maybe Mark can take over there. Um, but because I was really around for those years and um, and we're still in in our uh, in our view, we're still kind of in first generation uh, AMMs. Um, the, the key issues that, that we were really seeing is that just AMMs are not simple enough for users who want yield. Uh, yeah. Folks who want yield want to stay long on their tokens. They don't want to sell or lose value or be at risk of losing value. Um, mm -hmm. And that's really what first generation AMMs um, you know, that, that was a kind of key challenge is that you do risk uh, losing value and pulling out less than you provided and uh -huh. you would have just been better off holding half your stake in, in ETH or holding half your stake in um, whatever token you wanted to provide. So yeah. those are the kind of key challenges that we want to provide. How do we offer single asset exposure and also protect uh, LPs from uh, impermanent loss ensure that at the very least they're pulling out what they've what they've provided. You know, up until now, 
it's been a bet that LPs have had to make. Are the trading fees and mining rewards going to be worth the uh, impermanent loss? And yeah. it's a calculation that's incredibly hard to make. And people just don't want to do that. They want it to be <laughs> simple. And that was the that was the user group that we were really building towards and, and have built towards. Um, now, uh, Mark, if you want to kind of take over and discuss yeah. where we're on, on, on V2 and the transition from V2.1 and then uh, where we see things going, you know, in the future. Yeah, so v V2 um, for Bancor was, um, I, I think, a, a really important experiment that someone had to perform. And, you know, it's pretty clear who in the industry wasn't paying attention because I think a lot of the mistakes that were made are, are about to be remade. Um, but essentially what we had was amplified bonding curves. So this basically is um, a, a system that I think uh, a lot of people are now becoming more familiar with, with Uniswap V3. But essentially um, that bonding curve that we were speaking about before, yeah. you, you give it the properties of a pool that is many times deeper than itself, right? And so we were, yeah. we were, dealing, we were dealing with pools that were um, behaving as if there were 20 times, as if there was 20 times more tokens in them than there actually was. And that means, so this is extremely beneficial for traders, by the way, because it means yeah. that um, the price impact of performing a certain trade is much more minimal. We call this a slippage and it's akin to the spread on a, a, a traditional market. Um, yeah. and, it, and, it'll, and that essentially means that the, the pool can support a very large amount of volume that a smaller pool wouldn't be able to support. Um, yeah. And, and so, yeah, we were doing this before anyone was really talking about, um, you know, screwing with the, the curves um, that, you know, is becoming quite popular right now. Um, yeah. And so in order, to, in order to manage that process, uh, Bancor uh, integrated very deeply with, with Chainlink. And we yeah. were using Chainlink oracles basically to um, help provide um, information about what the markets were doing. And that allowed yep. the pools to uh, dynamically adjust their weights, which is, which is something that we, we haven't spoken about. But this just basically means that instead of um, using the K invariant that we mentioned before, you use something called the strong invariant. Um, this is described extremely well in the balance of white paper, if, if any of your listeners want to, um, to delve into that. But essentially, that means that you can change kind of which position on the curve is actively being traded at once. So rather than trading the rather than changing the number of tokens, instead what you can do is just kind of, you know, move the relative weights relative to each other, and that allows the um, the specific section of the curve being traded on to move up and down. Um, Uniswap v3 is kind of a derivative of, of this idea, but their execution is is quite different, very novel, very interesting, um, and and obviously that's it's working much better. Um, because they don't have this Oracle feed and they allow users to kind of withdraw and, and reprovide their liquidity dynamically. But for Bancorp V2, we were letting a Chainlink Oracle do that. And the problem with that wasn't, by the way, with Chainlink Oracles. They, they work exactly as advertised. They were very reliable. The problem is, is that Chainlink Oracles and Oracles at all can only tell you about the past or the present, right? If you have a, um, an infinitely fast Oracle, the, the best resolution that it can give you is zero seconds. The problem yeah. is ar arbitrageurs and miners know the future. And in fact, miners can, de can determine the future. And so what they were doing, um, and this is you know, what Bancor helped to illuminate, um, was what we now call Oracle front running. So they can predict what the Oracle is about to do um, in terms of changing the weights. 
and then set up a situation that allows them to, to make a, a very um, efficient trade, um, which essentially allows them to extract value from the protocol. And this led to slow leakage out of the pools. Um, so Bancor was going through this. Uh, Dodo implemented a, a similar Oracle system, but with an internal Oracle as well. And they saw similar leakage problems. It's basically just, it's like playing chess against an opponent to whom you have to reveal all of your moves before you make them, right? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, what the, that's what the adversarial nature of Ethereum is like. Um, and on an amplified bonding curve that, um, you know, the consequences of that were, um, were manifold. So that was the Bangalore version two experiment. Um, and version 2.1 so was maybe, like, okay. Just, just for our, our listeners, if I could just recap what you said there to make sure that uh, we have a good understanding of this going into the next thing. So sure. normally uh, the liquidity is essentially spread out. And so as people buy and they sell, you know, you have this, uh, the movement of price kind of cascades through the liquidity. And so what you're able to do here is you're able to say, hey, the pricing oracle is telling you that, you know, Chainlink is trading at 20 bucks or something. And so you mm -hmm. concentrate the liquidity right around that $20 range uh, so that the impacts of the buying and selling are minimized. Um, but that what happened then is that they could predict how the pricing oracle was going to tell you, hey, it's going to move this way or that way. And then they could execute trends. Uh, transactions based on that prediction and then extract value from the protocol in that way. Is that accurate? That's exactly accurate, right. And so you could see that, for example, uh, miners would deliberately, um, you know, they were prioritizing transactions that were going to force the, the price in the pool to do the opposite of what the Oracle was expecting. Things uh, like that, right? Yeah. And so, and of course, like, you know, we should have expected it in, in a way that we did expect it. Um, but it just wasn't clear um, how how dramatic the consequences were going to be. And I think that, you know, um, I really, uh, everyone that I speak to in the industry that's paying close attention to, to Uniswap V3, um, uh -huh. I think that it's like Uniswap V3's solution is perfect exactly the way it is, right? It's uh -huh. meant for sophisticated market makers um, that are going to contribute liquidity, anticipate changes, and, and um, in a centralized way, um, you know, remanage their their capital on their own. I think yep. that all of the automated solutions that are, are going to be deployed on on Uniswap v3 are likely to suffer from identical or very similar uh, types of they're not even attacks, right? Just games that um, that traders and and arbitrageurs and and Ethereum miners are likely to play with them. But yeah, it basically yep. anything anything that's predictable um, in in the way that it controls the price of something. And in yep. Uniswap v3, you kind of control that by moving liquidity around. Um, as long as it's predictable, you, people are going to find a way to extract value out of it. And, and that's a big problem. Michael, yeah, 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 that's super interesting. Okay, so so what did that lead to in terms of version 2.1? Yeah, so um, so for version 2.1, we, um, we knew that the um, impermanent loss protection that we were offering on version 2, that was the, the real thing that people were interested in. Right, and yeah. I, I can't I can't tell if it's because we were kind of too early, because I can see now a, a lot of people in the in the industry are getting really excited about these amplified bonding curves and other things and capital efficiency. Um, but when Bancor version two was kind of going through, um, you know that that trial period, people didn't really care about that. They were mostly interested in the fact that they could provide a single token because we had single token staking in version two, 
and yeah. that the protocol guaranteed that they wouldn't lose money. And compared to other AMMs um, at the time and even now, um, that was like a godsend, right? People were were so sick of you know providing liquidity, supporting projects, and trying to to garner fees, only to find out that months down the track, had they done nothing at all, um, yeah. you know, saved all of that gas on transactions and all of the hassle of of learning how to do this, that it it wasn't just worth nothing, um, that it actually cost them money. Um, and so the, the impermanent loss protection was like, okay, that was the nugget of gold in version two. And that's the thing that we should focus on. So if we can't do it with oracles and, and price manipulation, um, how about we underwrite it, right? Just insure it. If you can't stop impermanent loss, which it very much looks like you, you can't, maybe you can insure it um, by becoming sort of like the state farm of, AM, of AMMs, right? Um, and so what, so what we've done now is basically said, okay, Let's have a look at how impermanent loss behaves across a very large number of pools. And you can see that at, at any one time, um, basically there are some pools that, are, that have quite significant impermanent loss, but in general, the impermanent loss for like on the, on average is hmm. not too bad. Now any individual liquidity provider can't really take advantage of that because it means that they have to buy all of those different assets and provide liquidity in all of them all at once, right? Um, and so Bancorp essentially, it, it, takes that, um, it takes that responsibility. If you are providing liquidity on Bancorp version 2.1, um, you're basically being told that along with everyone else providing liquidity with you, um, there is this kind of shared risk um, that is uh, kind of worn by the BNT holders themselves. So we basically ref reflect the risk of... Um, of impermanent loss onto token inflation, right? Uh -huh. So when the, when the protocol, right, so when there's a, a large amount of impermanent loss on the protocol, um, uh -huh. BNT inflates a little bit, right? And as we, you know, it's really interesting to have a look at the, the BNT um, supply charts as a result of this, because you would think that, you know, refunding all of this impermanent loss by printing BNT would be catastrophic for, for token supply, but it's really not. You actually have to zoom right down on this, um, you know, this kind of baseline uh, blue bar on the, the most recent graph that, that Nate made to actually see what the impermanent loss impact has been. So the model's working quite well. Um, and this is why BNT holders are happy to wear that risk. It's the same reason why NXM holders are happy to underwrite risk on their protocol. And the same reason why Aave token holders are happy to underwrite risk on, on their protocol. There's kind of this strength in um, in diversifying and sharing the risk across many different assets. Um, uh -huh. And just as it works for lending, just as it works for smart contract insurance, it can also work for AMMs. And, and that's kind of what Bancor has done. So I'd say that we're, the, we're, we're kind of the first to kind of merge this idea of, um, of insurance underwriting AMMs into, into a singular um, protocol. It also means that BNT is the first like insurance slash liquidity um, token around. Yeah, it's super interesting. So uh, let me just kind of get this clear. So basically, if you're experiencing a permanent loss in your one asset, they're going to make it up for you by providing you with extra BNT to yeah, make yeah, different. essentially, now, yeah. So I can't. I mean, that, that's partially true. Um, it's going to be a lot more. It's going to be a lot easier to explain on on V3, but I'm not sure that I can share that information yet. But what I can tell you about version 2.1 is that basically, if you have a very small amount of the pool, like if you only yeah. have like 
0.5% of the pool. The protocol will just let you uh, withdraw all of your deposit in, um, in, the, in the token that you've provided, regardless of the impermanent loss, because the, the actual impact that it has on the system is, is so small. Um, and that's true as long as the protocol has pool tokens in that pool. Um, so we've seen that, you know, uh, some community members get very excited about certain pools like the BAT pool. Um, yep. And they basically provided so much liquidity that the protocol sort of withdrew all of its capital. Um, and in that system, um, you now, if there's impermanent loss, the protocol is forced to print BNT in order to reimburse you. Um, and then the other side of that is that if you're a very large liquidity provider, like, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or something in, 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 that, um, in that range, uh, it's basically impossible for you to withdraw TKN from the pool if there's been a lot of impermanent loss, um, uh-huh. you know, all, all of the TKN. And so in that situation, the protocol will also reimburse you by, um, by printing BNT. And so, uh, Michael, the real key mechanism here is the protocol has an, abil- uh, an ability to co-invest alongside yeah. uh, LP. So I come with a 100K link, the protocol yeah. then mints 100K worth of BNT and takes the other side of the pool. Yep. And by taking the other side of the pool, they earn half the fees. Let's say there's mm-hmm. just liquidity providers in there. One, one is the link holder and the other is the protocol. Now, mm-hmm. if the link holder experiences some impermanent loss. Now, when they, they're only reimbursed when they pull out. Yeah. And in order, to, in order for the protocol to reimburse them with, uh, uh, for their impermanent loss, the protocol is using the fees that yep. is generated um, yep. from providing liquidity and co-investing alongside the LP. So yep. if, if those fees then are greater or equal to the impermanent loss, the protocol can cover the link holders uh, impermanent loss without minting any new BNT. Yeah. That yep. makes sense. So, so when yeah, that- Yeah, absolutely. So, so then like from a mechanic standpoint, because I want to get my link back, does the protocol ultimately go and buy some link and then, you know, bring that back in and then be able so the, to reimburse so the or does the person get BNT, which could then have some variance price? Sure, sure. So the fees uh, are generated in both uh, the, the, the protocol fees from their co-investment mm-hmm. yeah. the fees are, uh, are earned in both link and, uh, and BNT. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. So you can, re- so the protocol can reimburse fully in link. Uh, it yep. can, or it can uh, reimburse partially in link and then partially the equivalent value in BNT. Yep. If, if that is the case, and it's, it's uh, more rarely the case that your uh, IL compensation would come in BNT, um, then, it's, then it's up to the LP to then convert. Let's say they don't want to hold the BNT. They can just convert it into an equivalent value of, of link immediately upon, uh, upon pulling out. Sure, sure, absolutely. That makes, yeah, it's super interesting. So does this mean for uh, the user that they're getting less fees because of the fact that the protocol is taking half of those fees? It's such an interesting question because you need to compare it to something, right? Less fees than what? Um, Let's consider the situation where um, you are going to provide liquidity with, let's say, ETH and LINK. Yep. Um, and you provide all of that liquidity yourself, right? Yep. You should be entitled to 100% of the fees. 
But what if you only provide the link? What if, what if you and I are going to enter into an agreement with each other where yeah. I provide the ETH and you provide the link, right? Yeah. And we know this is a 50-50 pool, so I'm going to provide half the capital. You're providing half the capital. Now you yeah. and I should share 50% of the fees, right? Because right. we both put up half. It's exactly the same um, for Bancor. If you're providing you know, uh, $100 in link, the protocol is providing $100 in BNT. Right, so you're not you're not actually getting less fees. You're getting exactly what you thought you that you would, um, because the, you're only putting up half the capital. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that makes super interesting sense. Yeah, that's fascinating. Very, very cool solution. How did you guys kind of like? How do you come up with the directions that you're going to take the protocol? How do you come up with uh, these things? We we drink heavily and shout at each other over Telegram until something <laughs> makes up. <sense. laughs> Uh, very, very interesting. Okay. Uh, there, I, I think there's um, literally the creator of AMMs, uh, Eyal Herzog, who created this primitive in late 2016 and brought it to market in 2017, is still heavily involved in all the designs and research and ideas. So it's a matter of us keeping a very, very close eye on the market on user needs, on pain points, on features they want, and translating that into product. Um, and that's where Mark is the kind of glue that keeps us together also, and, and him and Ayal are a force to be reckoned with in terms of uh, research and innovation. Um, you know, we still think we're in the first inning of, um, of AMS. Right. And the key moat in DeFi, you can build a lot of, well, I think in Bancor's case, we're one of the few DeFi protocols that actually has built stickiness into the protocol. People want to stay with us because they want to stay protected against IL. These features aren't offered elsewhere. But another not, not, not even just IL, but like, you know, there's so many rug pulls and, you know, all sorts of right. scams. It's nice to know that you have a protocol you can trust. If I was going to tell a friend who's never done anything in yield farming before, Hey, listen, you know, do I want to send them on some degen pool that they're going to find on Binance Smart right. Chain? Or am I going to say, you know what, just like go try Bancor and, you know, that can be your gateway drug. Um, and yeah. it's a pretty good one that you're probably going to return to. So, yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because like there are, um, you know, within the Bancor community, there are certainly those, uh, you know, that degen demographic. But yeah. for them, Bank Bancor is like their island of safety. You know, yeah. they're, they, they have like, you know, their estate on Bangkok and then they yeah. go out and like little, little DeFi degen adventures. Um, <laughs> but then it's, but then it's always to kind of come back into their preferred asset, either BNT or Link or ETH or wrap Bitcoin or whatever, and then get that back into their position. Right. So it's almost like um, Bangkok is their base of operations. It's like their bank account now. And then, you know, they have these, um, you know, these little entrepreneurial adventures onto uh, other DEXs or something. Um, but then, you know, it's only with a small amount of their capital and it's always uh, bringing it back. So I think that, that that sentiment that, you know, the Bancor can be your, like your nest egg or your, um, you know, uh, the, the, the safety that you don't have to worry about rug pulls or impermanent loss. That's something that is kind of growing very organically within, within our user base. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely, definitely imagine that. Cool. So, what are uh, what are the upcoming changes going to V three that you can talk about? Obviously, probably some limitations. Well, un unfortunately, not a lot. 
Um, <laughs> I wish we could share more and we do have information coming out sooner. I will say the, you know, we, we're focused on making staking even, even more simpler, you know, within the DJ, the, the, the DGENs and DeFi Bancor is known as, uh, you know, a simple and safe way to, to earn, you know, passive income on, on your token holdings. Yep. Uh, but, you know, if you were to hand Bancor over to your grandmother or, or some of the people that a lot of people that are entering crypto right now, even some of the sort of general crypto investors who've been in the space for a while, um, there's still a learning curve. And so we're interested in simplifying that as much as possible as a lot of our uh, or some of the competing AMM models have drifted towards designing a solution that is more geared towards active liquidity management, uh, professional algorithmic uh, optimization of your of your uh, liquidity stake. We're headed really in in the opposite direction. Um, it's to make sure that uh, it's a true set and forget solution. You're not having to worry about waking up one morning and, and your stake being worth way less. So V3 is very much focused on continuing to um, simplify and also building this innovation into the pool that will allow LPs to, we think, make you know higher, significantly higher rates. Yeah. Not killing the you know passive liquidity experience really actually even in, improving it. Um, so it's this focus on simplicity, this focus on profitability. Uh -huh. um, I'd say anti anti fragility as well, right? We we everything that we do, we want to make the system more and more robust, right? We want it to be um, sustainable and self sustaining forever. Um, and and V three has definitely got you know, those, um, you know, it, it's taken the, the, the best structures, the best foundations from V2.1 and everything that we've learned over the, the last nine months. And it is, you know, kind of adding onto that building, you know, continuing to, to build that groundwork for something that can just live on its own forever and, um, and, and not need someone to actively maintain it. Right. I think that that's the um, that's kind of the, the dream for uh, for DeFi, right, is to have a protocol that's completely automatic and that users uh -huh. can interact with and do whatever they want with um, uh -huh. that, that does that, you know, that's guaranteed to survive. And, and that's really what we're working towards. Yeah, there, there will be functionality on the, both the liquidity provider side and the trader side that we've never really seen in, in crypto before. Um, and so those are gonna be quite important. Something we haven't spoken about also is, is really the availability of, of assets. When people think of the, um, you know, let's say the gems, right? They're like 100X, 200X risky tokens that, uh, that, that they think could really go crazy. Those are really appearing first on some of the other uh, AMMs. And yeah. we want to make sure those are appearing first on, on Bancor. Now, the reason nice. they're appearing first on other AMMs is because our core value proposition, single-sided liquidity and impermanent loss protection, requires the DAO, the Bancor DAO, um, approving the, the tokens for that. So now we've approved about 70 tokens that 
are whitelisted for single-sided exposure and IL protection. But they're, you know, it's it's a little difficult for the token project to go through the whitelisting process. The DAO also and, and, and BNT holders in general have to take on a little more risk uh, for, for earlier stage um, projects, whether it be um, rug pulls or a token, you know, mooning so much that it's costing the protocol a lot in terms of IL insurance. So V2 uh -huh. will also be focused on really bringing down the, the barrier to both whitelisting and allowing a lot of our features, um, namely IL protection, to be fully permissionless. So that any token project um, without interfacing with our DAO, without putting out a, a whitelisting proposal, can, act, can build a pool that's protected from, from IL and, and offer that to their token holders. So we're really excited for Bancor. We've always been focused on this long tail that we think is incredibly important, both for our LPs and traders and token projects. So we're excited to see Bancor become this liquidity of first resort for, for these projects. And, and, bank, and, and they're really being a no brainer for them to launch their first pool on Bancor because their their holders, it's just safer and, and, and more profitable for them to stake on, uh, on Bancor. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's uh, that's very good. Quick, uh, quick question. So, some other places you'll see single asset pools, like you can go on Auto Farm and Stake Cake and some things like this. What's the difference between what you guys do and what some of these other places that you'll see these single asset pools? I don't know, like the mechanics of how they make work in those places. Sure. So maybe Mark can speak to Cake. Uh, we we have seen some protocols. What they'll do is they'll say, hey, we have single-sided asset, single-sided liquidity, and they'll take your token that you provide and they'll split it into the, the token and then the, the paired asset. So you'll put in link into a link pool and half of it will go into ETH and half of it will go into link. Then you withdraw it. The, the protocol is then selling the uh, link, or I'm selling the ETH back into link, right? So you're still, while you're an LP exposed, to IL and price movements of ETH relative yeah. to LINK in that, in that situation. Um, then there are some um, farms that are sort of yield aggregator farms where they'll only stake in pools that um, are uh, like averse to IL. So stable to stable pools are one that say like Curve offers. Yeah. Um, so you could stake your, let's say, like USDC into Wireign, and it would choose a number of stable to stable pools to get your uh, to get yield on. Um, uh -huh. But then again, that's that's sort of just limited to to stables. Yeah. Um, Mark, can you speak to um, Cake at all? Yeah, I mean, uh, so not just Cake, but in, in general, a, a lot of these sort of uh, single token staking things, it, it's not to um, achieve anything in particular, right? The, the value proposition is um, entirely from um, the, the, the token team incentivizing um, the, the locking up of tokens, for example. So um, if you have a look at, I mean, I, I'm not super familiar. Cake is interesting because it changes, it seems every, every week. I'm not entirely <laughs> on top of some of their incentives programs, but they have a lot of, things to do with the cake token um 
that don't actually have much to do with the the functionality of, of the protocol. Um, things like the, the the lottery, which is actually you know an un an unregistered lottery system on on BSC. So I'm really interested to see how that turns out. Um, and uh, you know, like what we saw with um, with Iron Finance recently before yep. the collapse, right? The yep. idea of, of of locking up um, locking up a, a token single sided um, in order to I, I think that the purpose of that was it it collateralized twenty five percent of its stablecoin, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the, the like that, right? So seventy five percent for USDC. And then they would mint uh, Titan as the as the rep. Yeah. Yeah. And then so yeah, there, there are these incentives programs where you, you put a token somewhere and you know it, it might give you more of that token, or as Nate said, um, it's kind of just it's not quite single token staking. They they say provide one token, but then behind the scenes they use Zapper or something to um, to move between two different assets, um, which is fine. Um, but on Bancor, it's true single-sided exposure right because there is we we're not we don't take your token and then sell it for bnt in order to deposit it to the pool it really does get deposited exactly what you provide and yeah. the um the incentive comes from the market right it's not Bancor doesn't you know i mean we have liquidity mining incentives as well um but then you know a very small fraction of our pools currently have those incentives on them most of the pools are completely self-sustaining just on the fact that users want to trade against them, right? Want to use those pools. Um, yeah. And so it, it, I think that that's what delineates Bancor single-sided staking from, from um, a lot of um, the other stuff. The, the closest comparison is actually probably something like Compound Arave, where yeah. um, you, you do provide a single token and out, you know, out of its own volition, right? It, it generates value for the protocol through lending and, and, and borrowing. Um, and Bancor is pretty similar, except instead of the lending mechanism, it's a, it's an AMM mechanism. Um, yep. but yeah, I would say that that's the distinction, right? Is that the, the profits, the yields, they come, you know, they're, they're generated organically, right? It's, it's actual revenue. It's not yep. invade. It's not invented revenue. And, and yeah. just to be clear, and it's, it's an inter interesting question. Like you think of a, a, a system like this, like I think sushi has, if you lock up your sushi, you have you put it in a contract and what sushi is doing is it's taking the lp fees that it's generated on the network and saying if you're staked if your sushi is staked in the x sushi contract then you get a percentage of fees that are generated on the network yeah in the core situation you actually have to provide the liquidity and have it serve a utility in the yeah. network used for trades or whatever the protocol is using it for in order to uh, generate those fees. And, and, and so it, it just makes a little more sense, we think, in terms of the tokenomics that, it, you know, in order to, to get the, the APR, to get those fees, that you're actually providing utility to the network. And it's not as sort of parasitic as say, hey, we're just going to take a piece of the LP fees and drop it on this contract. Uh, for those who decide to stake there. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Okay, um, so you were mentioning about some of the features. I know one of the things that I like about Vancor uh, quite a bit, you guys brought, I think it was in April, uh, limit orders. Uh, so that's that's super cool. I don't know, like, it seems like something that you would always want, but uh, 
you know, was one of the annoying things missing from places like Uniswap and, and others. So it was great to see you guys bring it up. How does that work technically? Like, why is it challenging to implement that? Why are you guys the ones who have it and most people don't? Yeah, it's super challenging. Um, so I think it's it's important to realize that, um, so that's a collaboration between uh, Bancor and Kipada. And one of the one of the things that makes it special is that the, um, the maker uh, is paying all of the gas associated with it. So mm-hmm. on Bancor, you can perform gas-free swaps um, by setting a limit order. And it's really the responsibility of the, of the, um, the people operating Keep It Dow to sort of get you that, that price that you wanted. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's up to them to execute the trade. Um, and in that sense, they pay the gas fee associated with that, with that transaction. And yeah. so I think that that's kind of coming, coming back to you know, the most obvious challenge of it is that if you set a limit order, when do you pay the gas, right? Do you yeah. set it at the time that you set it? Or do you have to like put a bit of extra ETH in there or something to try and cover the, the gas cost when it, when it finally gets executed? And how do you know how much to put there? All that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's not, it's not too difficult to write a, a piece of code that says, I want you to execute the transaction when the bonding curve reaches this particular point. Um, mm-hmm. But then if we did do that, coming back to what we were saying about, you know, oracles and everything. Now you've got someone that's literally telling you that this transaction is about to go through. What's the first yep. thing you're going to do, right? Is you're going to try and front run it or you're going to try and um, manipulate it such that that trade get, gets executed when you want it to be executed. Um, and uh-huh. this is why this is why Keeper DAO is such a valuable contributor to the, the bank or ecosystem is that they have this really wonderful way of, of basically obfuscating some of the some of these activities, so that front runners and miners and stuff don't, you know, they're not always aware of what's happening, and that kind of protects users against um, those kinds of uh, adversarial actions. And we're seeing this more and more, right? Like Flashbots is is another really great solution to um, to this kind of thing, um, especially in preventing sandwich attacks, not just front running. Um, so yeah, they, it, there are a huge amount of challenges with it, and it's just difficult for like. Uh, a protocol to kind of offer it natively because you kind of want this kind of centralized influence um, on the other side of it to sort of be responsible for that action. Um, and, you know, that's what Keep It Out brings to, to the table in, in making sure that users get the price that they, that they set. Um, whereas if you try to automate it, the best that we can do is say that when, you know, the bonding curve reaches a certain point, execute this trade, which just opens it up for, for front running and, and other attacks. So huge amount of problems associated with it. Much better to have, um, you know, someone be financially incentivized to make sure that the trader gets the price that they set. And that's what Keep It Out solved. Cool, cool. That's awesome. What other, what are some other features that people might be interested in that uh, Bancor offers? Well, I think, uh, you know, the interface itself provides more transparency into your returns than you'll really mm-hmm. see in any AMM protocol. Once you stake inside uh, a, a pool, it opens up a position and yeah. you can check your portfolio and yeah. review all your positions and what their individual APR is, what the IL you would have suffered it, it, had you not been protected. Uh, our IL protection actually accrues over time. So it starts it at uh, 30 days and increases by 1% per day. So to get uh-huh. protection, you have to be in the pool for 100 days, which 
for most people who have a long position on a, on a project kind of makes sense. Um, uh -huh. And so, so you're, you're able to monitor your uh, IL protection that you're accruing over time once you've reached uh, full protection. So I think really that transparency is, is pretty important. Um, and then, you know, the obvious sort of single sided provision uh, and exposure, the, the like, IL protection, uh, the limit orders we've mentioned, um, the trading experience in general uh, is smooth. There are no KYC or signups. You just connect uh, any Web3 wallet, MetaMask, or, or in any other wallet you're using. So it's quite smooth there. Um, and then, you know, a lot of stuff that, that's launching in V3 that we can't necessarily talk about, but that will uh, really add to both the LP um, side of the product and also uh, the trading functionality. Um, some trading functionality that we haven't seen yet uh, in, in really the AMM space where we're excited to introduce. Um, so we, we think it is uh, a, a pretty good home for your assets. Uh, anyone who really wants that simplified liquidity provision experience, we think Bancor is a, a good place to be. So I, yeah, think, I, I, want, I want to reiterate just on a, a couple of things there. So I, I do think that the user interface and experience on Bancor is world-class. Um, you know, we're not, um, yeah, the, the project is kind of, I guess, old enough, mature enough that it, we want it to look more like, you know, some of the best internet banking apps around, right? With like the, the cool blues and, and pastels and, and soft edges, right? It, it looks like, um, you know, it, it's easy to understand. It's easy to, um, to engage with. And it's, you know, it, it's pleasant. It's not, um, you know, like a, it, it doesn't look like a, a, a PlayStation loading screen from, from 1995 or, or something like that, right? It's, it has its own specific uh, branding and it, it looks, you know, it, it looks very much like um, what you would be already uh, accustomed to using uh, financial services that you engage with every day, such as your, you know, your internet banking platform or something like that. Um, something that Nate didn't mention is that, um, if there is something lacking from the protocol, I, I think that we've got one of the most responsive development teams and, and communities around. If you are in the Telegram channels or on Twitter or on our discourse page, um, there's a, a huge amount of discussion there all the time. And you know we have a pretty good track record of incorporating user suggestions into the, the performance of the protocol, right? The limit orders were a part of that. That was a uh, a, a community demanded feature that we then figured out how to do, right? Um, the uh, the movement from uh, Ethereum-based governance to snapshot-based governance that was demanded by the community, and so we figured out how to do it. Um, and all of the tokens that we onboard, these are based mostly off the back of community suggestions, right? We like the Woo token, right? This is something that the community is interested in. Uh, we should probably whitelist it, right? And so it has this very sort of grassroots sort of feel to it um, where the, the team is literally serving the community rather than yeah. leading it in a sense. And I think that yeah, that makes, that makes for a much more, um, I don't know. I, I think community members feel a little bit more agency on Bancor than they do in, in some other projects. Um, and, and if that's not a reason to, uh, to, to want to sort of belong here, then I'm not sure what it is. That's great. What, uh, do you guys have some sort of an approximate timeline on when V3 will be released? <laughs> 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 I, 
we we don't have an exact timeline it's uh not too far down the line um, <laughs> the, the contract I know, I, I know it sucks i know it sucks like we, we really just want to say so much about it including when and why and how it's going to look and that kind of thing uh but uh, i'm under a very strict gag order no timelines <laughs> No roadmaps yet. It's coming, but don't say anything. Don't say anything. <laughs> Basically, um, we, we should have more information soon. The contracts are, are the, the coding is underway. We've selected uh, an auditor and scheduled time with them. Um, so it, it, it is coming. Uh, I would encourage people to just look at the team's track record. Uh, we have said we're going to provide single-sided exposure that we would uh, remove impermanent loss from the equation for liquidity providers and we delivered on that and we are going to deliver uh, what we think is the most exciting innovation yet to, to come to AMMs uh, with V3. So we're just asking for the community's patience as we you know make the contracts as uh, robust as possible, do as much testing as possible and uh, it'll it'll be out soon. Sounds uh, sounds fair. Well, appreciate uh, appreciate everything you guys are doing for the community. Mark, Nate, this has been great. Do you have any last things you'd like to add? Or well, uh, one is sort of a call for for folks' help. Um, these concepts, although they're simple on the front end, uh, are not as easy to explain how things work beneath the 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 front end. So. We're always looking for uh, people who can help us with communications and uh, tutorials, videos, explaining these concepts, not only to people in DeFi and in crypto, but also to the general investing public. So if you're interested in, in what we've said and you want to create any content around it, we have uh, content grants always available. So I just encourage people to reach out to me uh, at Nate Hinman on uh, Telegram or on Twitter. Uh, we're happy to work with you on, on educating people on how to stake safely and simply uh, inside AMM pools. Um, so that, that's kind of a, the main ask for me. And um, yeah, excited to be in touch with anyone who's interested in, in AMM liquidity and staking. Yeah, and if there's, if there's anything that, um, that I have spoken about or not spoken about thoroughly enough um, during you know the course of this podcast. Uh, I encourage your entire viewership to, to reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is mbrichardson87. Uh, if you just Google my name and Bancor, you should find it pretty quickly. Um, and yeah, if you if you want to continue the conversation with me, if there's anything about the the particulars of, of Bancor, its tokenomics, how the system works, I'm always happy to, to talk to community members um, about these things. So don't be shy. Um, I'm, I'm pretty available. Sounds fantastic. Well, thanks again, guys. Really, really appreciate your time today. Appreciate you sharing and uh, keep up the good work. Exciting to see what uh, you'll have coming up next. Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Awesome. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Mm -hmm.